groups that you already know something about, that you've heard something about, that you know that exists out there that will, um, uh, I think, make it easier to communicate the information, but will also make it easier for you to address the issue should that uh, opportunity ever arise. It's been interesting to me to hear a couple of our high schoolers talk about the opportunities that they ha have had. I had two just today tell me that they've had opportunity at their schools uh, to mention that they are, were not evolutionists, and one teacher took it quite, quite well. Uh, the other one, we're um, uh, hoping that he recovers from his uh, uh, apoplexy. <clears throat> But tonight I want to talk to you about two things. One of them I think that you'll find um, uh, at least a bit fun. At least I hope it'll be fun for you. Um, the other one is a little bit more complex. And I uh, must confess, uh, I know very little about the, the, the entire subject. But um, I know enough to get myself in trouble and probably get you in trouble. Uh, it, it, I want to talk to you about the molecular basis of life. Now, uh, in layman's terms, uh, we're gonna, I want to talk to you about the origin of life. You know, I think, that Darwin in his book, The Origin of the Species, which was published in 1859, Darwin never addressed the origin of life. He started with alive beings and then um, postulated concerning their evolution. But he never addressed the issue of um, um, <clears throat> the origin of life. Now, his disciples certainly did, and some of those were even his uh, contemporaries, like T.H. Uh, Huxley, who was considered Darwin's bulldog. Maybe you've heard that, that title before on, on Huxley. But he went ahead and leapt backwards in terms of the evolutionary process, suggesting that um, um, the, what, what Darwin was saying about pre or existing uh, life could also be stretched back into the origin of life and that somehow life came from chemistry and in, in small uh, advantageous advances one day became life. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, uh, the origin of of life. Um, before 1950, hardly anything was known about uh, the molecular basis for life. And yet during that 10-year period, during the 50s, in that decade, there was a succession of dramatic uh, discoveries which completely transformed the biological sciences. One of those discoveries that you know something about or have heard something about uh, was in 1953 by two scientists, Watson and Crick, Francis Crick, uh, where they, when they reported their findings on DNA. I, I was somewhat surprised to discover that DNA was discovered in 1953. Uh, I would have thought it would have gone much, it would have been much earlier than that. But um, in that period of the 50s, there was a lot of stuff that uh, was reported and uh, uh, taught uh, in, the, in that one decade, uh, introducing this whole subject of the molecular um, basis of life. Now, guys, uh, I, I took a picture of this to show you exactly what I don't know. Uh, I, if we were going to talk about molecular uh, biology, we would have to learn some things about this. 
but I don't want to learn things about this. But that's, when you, when you read the chapters on this stuff, this is what you find. You find all this stuff that they're talking about, all these little th- diagrams that look a lot like this one, which would require a whole lot more training than any of us have, certainly than I have. Um, but guys, I, I've never suggested to you that I knew everything about the subject. But uh, I, I'm telling you, you could read four chapters and you could find out as much about this stuff as I do. Uh, no, I, I need those over me. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm, I'm, fixing to turn this, I'm fixing to turn this off. Uh, I just wanted to show you... <laughs> I'm, thanks, for, thanks for the help, Richard. Uh, <laughs> um, I just wanted to show you the, the kind of thing that you'd be dealing with if you're going to dive into this subject some more. But there are four chapters in this book that I've mentioned before. And uh, basically what they do is give you the results of all of these discoveries in molecular biology. Now, before the 1950s, it was possible to hold on to a hope that perhaps there would be advances in science that would reveal a number of intermediate forms between chemistry and, and a cell, a living cell. For instance, one of the more uh, complex pieces of chemistry, a crystal or a snowflake, there would be, uh, there w- it was possible in the 50s or before the 50s to believe that as, as science advanced, we, it would demonstrate the connection between the crystal and life itself. Um, but instead of revealing uh, a multitude of transitional forms, uh, say between a snowflake and a cell, molecular biology, folks, has served only to emphasize the enormity of the gap between that which is chemistry, non-life, and that which is cellular life. If anything, ladies and gentlemen, molecular biology and the biological sciences have done vast disservice to the whole pursuit of evolutionary theory. It has been demonstrated that in terms of their basic biochemical design, the living system can be thought of as being ancestral to any other living system. And so that would have been very necessary if evolution, if T.H. Huxley would have been correct. But folks, molecular biology uh, has uh, done as much to overturn uh, evolutionary theory as anything. And um, the idea that further advances and, and further discoveries in scientific data have done nothing but to augment evolutionary theory is categorically false. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, it is just the opposite. This idea that we've had that the more that science discovers, the more evidence there is for evolution, that is the very opposite of um, the data as it exists. In fact, one gentleman suggested that had um, the molecular evidence that is available today been available a century ago, evolution would not still be around. And yet, the, the marvelous thing is, even though the evidence continues to overturn the theory, people continue to hold tenaciously. Uh, onto that theory. Um, 
again, in, in spite of, in the face of, the evidence that continues to pour in. Now, but that, that's, uh, that's somewhat introductory. I, I do want to sh show you uh, what the evolutionist suggests as the common explanation of the origin of life. Uh, maybe you've heard some of this before, but the idea is that there, um, there existed billions of years ago this uh, inorganic ocean. It's been called a prebio prebiotic soup. And in this prebiotic soup, there existed all these things like nitrogens and amino acids and uh, methane and carbon dioxide and all these things commingled, actually amino salts, which commingled to form amino acids, which in turn formed peptides and then formed polypeptides. And sure enough, those ultimately formed a protein molecule and ultimately DNA, uh, which, as you know, is the building block of, block of life, and therefore, voila, life uh, has uh, begun that way. In this prebiotic soup, this uh, inorganic ocean that existed billions of years ago. Now, that too has been postulated, and what evidence is there for such a thing? Zero evidence. Now, guys, I say zero, but that's not exactly true. Let me, let me show you the evidence that is presented as defensive of the origin of life as the, evolutionary, as the evolutionist sees it. In the 1950s, two Nobel Prize winning scientists... Uh, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey at the University of Chicago were awarded a Nobel Prize for their experiment which, which was in essence the explanation of the origin of life. And what they did was they took what they were trying to do is um, uh, create or to simulate um, the Earth's early atmosphere. They were trying to simulate and reconstruct this prebiotic soup that was supposed to exist out of which life sprung. And so they tried to create this thing as best they knew how, and what they did is they put together methane gas uh, plus ammonia plus water, and then they passed an electric spark through that atmosphere and produced glycine, which is an amino acid, which, as you know, is used as a building part of protein, which is the building blocks of DNA, which is the building block of life. And for that experiment, ladies and gentlemen, which was conducted in the 1950s, for that experiment, they were awarded a Nobel Prize. And what was created was glycine. Glycine, ladies and gentlemen, an amino acid. Now, folks, do you realize how far an amino acid is from life? Well, let me just assure you, it's a long ways. But as desperate as the evolutionary world is to find some explanation for the origin of life, this is the best that they could postulate. Uh, methane gas plus ammonia plus water, electric spark like, like lightning, 
created uh, glycine, which is an amino acid. Uh, and that's all, ladies and gentlemen. Not life, an amino acid. A living cell uh, has protein, DNA, RNA, and other things. Uh, a single cell is considered to be more complex than the city of New York, which is awfully complex. But um, an amino acid is what protein is made up of. And protein is what DNA is made up of. And DNA is a color building block of life. So I'm trying to give you an idea of the distance between amino acid, glycine, and life. But all that was created, ladies and gentlemen, was glycine. That's all. <coughs> the Miller-Urey experiment which has been so widely hailed as an explanation for the origin of life produced glycine. That's all. Not life, an amino acid. That's all. Now, folks, <clears throat> there's several problems with this experiment concerning how it um, could possibly uh, be an explanation for the origin of life. Number one, for this experiment to work, um, just as Miller and Urey designed it, no oxygen can be present. Now, folks, in the prebiotic soup, what you have to say is no oxygen is now present. Because if oxygen is present, it interrupts the whole chain reaction. And, and so in this atmosphere, there was no oxygen. Um, secondly, no sunshine can be present because ultraviolet light interrupts the whole process. Um, now, folks, if there is no oxygen, there would be no ozone layer to ward off the ultraviolet light radiation. So if no oxygen can be present and no ultraviolet light can be present, if there's no oxygen, ultralight, ultraviolet light is going to be present. Do you see in any small way? Folks, um, this was a very controlled, very confined, very minute experiment. And by the way, is it going on naturally and spontaneously in creation today? No. No, it's not happening at all, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <clears throat> on top of all that, there has never been one trace of any prebiotic soup ever discovered in sedimentary rock. Have you ever heard of the dawn rocks that were found in someplace in Greenland? The dawn rocks, which are considered 3.9 billion years old, the oldest rocks ever. I mean, if you're 3.9 billion, you're pretty old. But the, in these dawn rocks discovered in Greenland, they thought surely there would be presence, there would be evidence of the prebiotic soup in those. No. No, ladies and gentlemen, not one trace of an evidence of the existence of a prebiotic soup anywhere in sedimentary rock. So, there's no evidence for it. There can't be any oxygen or sunshine present. Um, very frankly, the only thing that was created was an amino acid. Let me go back to a moment ago. I said, is there any evidence that life existed this way? And I said, no, there isn't. And then I said, well, that's not wholly true because this is what they offer. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's what they offer. 
as an explanation for the origin of life. Now, I say again, is there any evidence for the prebiotic soup? No, none. Because that's not evidence of the origin of life. That's an evidence of the creation of amino acid in a very controlled uh, experimental uh, setting. Referring to this whole process that uh, is illustrated by Miller and Urey, uh, Dr. Harold Morowitz, nice Irish boy, um, a, an American biochemist, said this, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Did you get that? You want me to read that again? Okay, I will. The complexity of the simplest known type of cell, the complexity of the simplest known cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the creationists has always said that the origin of life is a miracle. <laughs> we hold to that. And, but here's a, a fellow that's saying, well, that couldn't possibly happen. Uh, so it must, it, I mean, if it did happen, it would be certainly, the origin of life certainly must have been very indistinguishable from a miracle. I have one other quote, because this one irritates me. Um, Dr. Francis Crick, the one who was one of the co-founders of DNA, um, he said in his book, Life Itself, that's the title of the book, Life Itself. He said, we seem forced to have to contradict one of the basic axioms of modern biochemistry in envisioning the origin of the cell. Listen to this. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available, available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle, so many are the conditions that would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Do you understand what he said? He said, if you're honest, you'll have to admit that uh, based on the available data, it can only get going by a miracle, if you're honest. The thing that makes me so furious, ladies and gentlemen, is that they're not honest. They lie. They, um, they, they uh, put together hoaxes. And, and the goal is so that they will not have to bow before a God who, um, who demands their allegiance. If you're an honest man, the problem is you can't find an honest man um, promoting evolution. Ah, that's probably an overstatement, but just a little bit one. Now, that's, that's the, the issue is the origin of life. That's it, folks. That's all you got. That's, there's no, in fact, if you're at school and they want to talk to you about the origin of life and you can mention the Miller-Urey experiment that only produced amino acids, a glycine, boy, you'll, you'll knock their socks off <coughs> because the average biology teacher doesn't know one word about the Miller-Urey experiment. I want to tell this story, and I hope I don't embarrass the young man, but... Um, I won't mention a name, but uh, one of our high schoolers talked to his, uh, one of his teachers at school about uh, he was not an evolutionist, and, um, and the, um, the teacher looked at him like he was an idiot, 
and he mentioned just a little bit about that. Remember that, that descent of the light, that thing that I stretched out here and had all the apes on it, you know? He mentioned a little bit about that, and it was speechlessness. Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, they don't know as much as you know. Very, and, and folks, we don't know much, but they don't know as much as you know. Now, the other thing that I want to mention to you tonight in terms of uh, the haves that we want to discuss tonight, I want to talk to you about um, the statistical uh, probability, the, um, the, the issue of chance. Um, evolution is one gigantic lottery. And, and I've, I told you on the uh, number one, by the way, we only have one more, so bear with me. We've only got tonight and next week and we're finished. But I, we talked about chance, and I gave you that article by R.C., who was um, um, addressing an article by Carl Sagan and, and the issue of chance, and we've already mentioned that. But I want to talk to you about the statistical probability. Now, folks, um, chance in evolution is the name of the game. Uh, you do understand uh, statistical probability, don't you? If I flip a coin, the chance of it coming up heads is one out of two. If I flip it twice, uh, the, the chance of it uh, coming up with consecutive heads is one in four, three times, one in six, ten times, one in 1,024, 20, one in 1,048,576. That's statistical probability. Statistical probability. Now, um, the doubts that surround evolutionary theory uh, were raised by a number of mathematicians and engineers at an international symposium conducted in, it was 1960-something, I think I want to say 64. Um, a group of mathematicians and engineers at an international symposium, the symposium was entitled Mathematical Challenges to the Neo-Darwinian Interpretation of Evolution. Mathematical challenges. This is a uh, this is a symposium um, held in the '60s. Now, guys, these figures will absolutely stagger you. I at least they they do me. I hope they'll stagger you too. The chance of one ton of amino acids reacting over a billion years. What is the chance that that one ton of amino acids reacting over a billion years will form one protein? One, not life. One protein. A ton of amino acids reacting over... What's, what is the statistical probability of that happening? The, the gods uh, smile against me. I, I, um, uh, um, well, I, I'm a, we're going to get a r little writing instrument here, but uh, in terms of the chance of uh, one ton of amino acids, 10 to the 1360th power. Now, you know, what, you, know what, you know what powers are, don't you? You know, you put these little things up here and you put them up there. Oh, look, it's beginning to do something. That means that you take a 10 and you put 1,360 zeros behind it. Now, guys, that's, that is the statistical probability of a ton of amino acids producing one protein, not life. 
Now, by the way, I hope you understand that this stuff is growing out of this symposium that was conducted by these mathematicians and engineers. That's here for Clay. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> um, <clears throat> ten. <laughs> I think it's the board. Uh, to the 1360th power. All right. Now, folks, to get a cell by chance, not, now we're talking, we, we're, we're moving from, oh gosh, we're bringing out the brig guns now. Uh, to get a cell by chance, uh, now we're, we're going from a protein to a cell now, would require at least another hundred functional proteins to appear simultaneously. In, uh, <laughs> well, if those don't work, <clears throat> yeah. And we're ready now. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, so we've got to, we're going to talk, we're going to start with a hundred proteins all together in the same place to get what we're, we're looking for a cell now. Uh, that is a uh, uh, hundred simultaneous events, each of independent probability. One man estimated that these, um, that these proteins, these 100 proteins, all in the same place, creating a, um, a, a cell now. One, now, we've got proteins now. We've, we've, you know, we're, just, we're starting with proteins. That the statistical probability of that happening was 10 to the 40,000th power. Um, I, to me, I mean, that's impressive. Um, uh, but if you're starting with a living cell now, you start with a living cell, what is the chance of a living cell evolving into a human body as handsome as mine? <laughs> if you're starting with a living cell, what are the chances of a living cell evolving into a human body? Now, before I answer that, uh, how, many, how many atoms... Atoms. Now, folks, I'm not talking about grains of sand. I'm talking about atoms. How many atoms are there, not in the world, but in the universe? Atoms. How many atoms are there in the universe? There are 10 to the 80th power. 10 with 80 zeros. Now, let's go back to my original question. What is the statistical probability of a living cell in, uh, evolving into a human body? The statistical probability is 10 308,759th power. And there's only 10 to the 80th atoms in the universe. Emil Boric, who is a, a French scientist and probability expert, uh, said that, or points out, that on the cosmic level, if anything is greater than 10 to the 50th power, it is considered impossible. In fact, in this symposium, a computer was uh, applied to try and figure out, figure out some of these statistical ratios, and the computer could not handle figures like this. Um, so if you've got something above 10 to the 50th, it, actually, 
Uh, I'm wrong. Uh, in computer language, now, and, and I'm sure things have gotten better. Andy could probably tell. I'm sure things are better than that now. But at least in, in, in this day, anything above 10 to the 1,000th power is considered impossible. Now, I am being told that that's starting with the living cell now. Starting with the living cell, that it the, the chances of it evolving to a human body is this figure. And in computer science, anything bigger than that is considered impossible. And it's the evolutionist that tells me that I am irrational for believing in what I believe in. Um, folks, in terms of complexity, an individual cell um, is nothing when compared to something like the, the brain cells of the average mammal. It, it gets more, uh, just a living cell. It, there, there are more complex cells than just a simple cell. Um, it, it, they, they talk about the total number of connections in the human brain. The total number of connections in the human brain is 10 to the 15th. Connections. Well, we're not talking about... And you can understand that the, the statistical probability of a single cell evolving into a human body would be utterly mind-boggling. Um, folks, molecular biology, one of the things that it has given us is an impression of the unbelievable perfection that exists within the human cell. And all of the creative beauty that exists in every living cell and because of that complexity it even more genuinely militates against the idea of chance bringing it about sir frederick hoyle who is a british astronomer in his book the intelligent universe by the way it was frederick hoyle that uh, is noted for his metaphor he said that the, the idea of a cell evolving into a human body is as likely as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. <clears throat> um, but that was his, he's famous for that little thing. Uh, in fact, he went on to say that chance assembly is just a naturalistic way of saying miracle. Uh, we Christians, we believe in miracles and are very comfortable with them. But anyway, let me read you one other quote and we're finished. The same Frederick Hoyle said, As biochemists discover more and more about the awesome complexity of life, it is apparent that its chances of originating by accident are so minute that they can be completely ruled out. Life cannot have arisen by chance. Ladies and gentlemen, you must understand that that is not written by a, a creationist. That is written by an avowed evolutionist. A proponent of evolutionary theory is telling you that life could not have arisen by chance. And yet, folks, you are the ones who are continued. You are continued. You, we are the ones who are caricatured as being buffoons. Folks, um, if anything, 
advances in medical uh, or in, sci- in molecular biology and in taxonomy and in cladistics and in homology all unite to say the same thing and that is that evolutionary theory was built on a lie and continues to be perpetrated by liars the only alternative of course as you and I will know is a commitment to Genesis 1 and 2 where we are told that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth let's quit our father uh, my hope is that all of us will find a greater sense of confidence in your word as a result of discussing these issues Lord, um, we know that your word is not a science book, but when it speaks about science, it speaks accurately. It is not a history book, but when when it speaks about history, it speaks accurately. It is a book that describes the redemption of sinful man. It is a book that describes how man got himself in such a mess by uh, choosing to rebel and how you in your sovereignty have saved him from the consequences of his sin by providing for him a redeemer that is um, more than adequate for man's sinful problem. Lord, we pray that as a result of discussing these issues that we'll have greater confidence in this book, a greater commitment to it, and a greater willingness to submit to it. Father, we acknowledge its absolute sovereignty over our will. It is to be the supreme arbiter of truth, not our biology teachers. And we pray, O God, that more and more we will discover the the great rationality of standing upon its truth with abject confidence. Father, if you have brought those who here tonight who have not yet seen the beauty of the creative God, the God who not only created us, but then went on to redeem us in Christ Jesus, if they have not seen the beauty of the God who is thrice holy, might they see that tonight. Father, we commit ourselves to an ongoing conformity to the image of Christ Jesus, and we do so in his name. Amen.